Welcome to the Horses and Life podcast, and happy Halloween. Today is Halloween. You guys will not be listening to this on Halloween, most likely, but it'll be a few days later. It's really interesting to find out some of the, maybe not to find out, but to really think about or look up some of the history of some of the holidays or the things that we celebrate in our culture. So many of the holidays are based in so much superstition and ridiculous things, and uh, Halloween is uh, kind of an entertaining one, but it is um, very fun to see all the kids dress up and have fun, and uh, I think it's even good when the adults get into it because too many adults don't have enough fun in their life, and I've probably been accused of being one of those every now and then, so... Anyway, maybe I'll go find me a Halloween costume and go trick-or-treating tonight. We'll see how it goes. Is there an age limit for trick-or-treating? I don't know, but maybe we'll find out. Anyway, moving on from that, I think since I've talked to you, I've been to Texas. I've been to Wisconsin. We had a small clinic in Texas and a big clinic in Wisconsin, so that went good. It was a new place in Texas that I tried out, but I met some great people. Um, both places met some good people that were uh, kind of new and, and interested in learning. It's always good getting some new people involved and watching them figure some things out and uh, get some of their questions answered on what's been going on with their horses. And then it is really cool whenever I get to see people that I've been working with for a long time and I can think back on the first few times I saw them uh, and how much they've improved and see the uh, the level that they're working at now and uh, knowing that they've been working on it hard when I haven't been around and, and uh, getting better all the time and there's been some people that have been around that they've been been around me long enough to see me make some changes and see me make some improvements and that's always a good deal and uh, I probably don't say it enough but I appreciate all the people that have been around me and been supporting me and been uh, having me come to clinics and come to uh, different places or they've come to my clinics and they've seen me go through some some evolution in a way of, of what I was doing, what I'm what I learned, what I'm doing now and and then the the more knowledge that I gain the more I can help other people. So it's been a lot of fun. So you guys out there know who you are and uh, thank you very much. Next I go let's see I have a clinic back here in Pennsylvania. I'm in Pennsylvania now and I have a clinic here next weekend, eighth, ninth and tenth, three day clinic. And we'll be here at Dublin Gap Ranch, and we'll get to get out and work some cattle and ride on the ranch a little bit, and we'll do some foundation stuff too, and just kind of whatever people bring, we'll work on that. So hopefully uh, people can come up here, and we'll have a little fun there. And the day after that, I fly off to Europe, and I've got a clinic over there in Austria, and sounds like they're working on getting one in Germany as well. Got a few other things to do while we're there, so lots of horses to work for sure. Okay. Today, you will be listening to an interview with my friend Fawn. Fawn is one of those people that I always enjoy talking to when I get a chance. Uh, we, we have good conversations. I don't know if they're good, but I think we both enjoy them and we, we get some good out of them. And I guess whether or not you guys enjoy them will be up to you. But I have a lot of respect for her and a lot of the things that she does. So I thought it'd be good to get her on the podcast and let you guys get to know her as well. So anyway... Hope everything uh, goes well in your world, and I hope I get to see some of you guys soon. And I hope you enjoy the conversation with Fawn. Here it is. 
Okay, I'm here with my friend Fawn Anderson. Fawn, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me up here, Cal. It's a pleasure to be here. So we've been kind of vaguely discussing what we're going to discuss today. So I'd like to start, just let you, obviously there's going to be a few people here that know who you are and a few that, that don't. So tell us a little bit about you and where you came from and what you're doing now. Sure. Well, I met Cal three years ago when we were both down in Florida, and pretty quickly we realized that we both kind of have the same outlook on horsemanship. We're both very open-minded and curious, and so that's where our friendship began. A little bit about me, I've been into horses most of my life. My first word, according to my parents, was horse. Nice. I don't know if that's true or not, but they they are adamant about that. Sticking to it now. Yeah, yeah, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So yeah, so... I was about 12 years old before I got my first horse, though, because we moved to the city and it was a little pony named Silken Satin, a little Pinto Arab cross. And uh, yeah, I just basically rode everywhere on her and you know started getting into showing like most kids do. You know, you got to have something to do, you know, gaming and showing. And uh, and then pretty soon I was ready to graduate to my first horse. And uh, once again, you know, more gaming and showing. And I competed in everything like driving, jumping, dressage, reining, trail, everything, every, you know, even driving. I might have said that. But uh, yeah, and it was uh, I was doing really well, actually, in the show ring. And the thing is, though, the better I did in the show ring the more my horse didn't want to be caught each day. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it was like the better I did in the show ring, the less my horses liked me. And it was, you know, it's kind of one of those things you don't necessarily tell people about, but you know it in your heart of hearts, you know, especially if you love horses. You know, it's one of those things that you can't turn off. And so uh, when I was 17, I went to Australia for exchange, student exchange. And while I was there, I got exposed to uh, a different type of horsemanship. And by this time, I was, you know, competing at the top, you know, top of the junior level and about to go into senior division. And so I was thinking, well, I'm going to have to up my game to be competitive. And uh, I was at a point where, you know, people had been telling me, you know, if, if my horse misbehaved, you know, showed who's boss and, you know, you know, be more forceful. And if it didn't, you know, give you a flying lead change, stick the, you know, stick the spur in. And all the answers seemed to be more force, you know, do more force, be stronger, get after them, make them do it. And when I was in Australia, my next door neighbor uh, was into this thing called natural horsemanship. And they had a whole program and all these you know, levels and these things. And I got really curious. And I was the only one in the whole neighborhood who wanted, who wanted to hear it because he was in his 50s. He was, you know, had a horse for the first time. His daughter was into dressage, and, but he knew nothing. And so the whole neighborhood, you know, he, he'd found this natural horsemanship stuff and he wanted to show everybody, right? And they're like, you're not going to show us, you know, anything. We've been into horses way longer than you. So they'd see him coming and go the other way. But I saw him ride one day and I was, and I saw him, he rode up and he wasn't touching the reins and he, he couldn't ride. I mean, he rode like a sack of potatoes You know, he's all hunched over and you could see from a mile away, he was not a rider. And so, you know, and he's riding up and he's not, he's got these sticks on his shoulders and he's not touching the reins. I'm like, well, that's kind of odd because he looks like he pretty much should be holding on to reins because he can't ride. And he comes up and he does this big, exaggerated sit-down movement and his horse stops. And he has this big, exaggerated, weird-looking backwards bicycle motion as his horse backs up. I'm like, what the heck? I'm like, what is that? What I'm is like, that? Yeah, I'm like, I'm the top junior rider in my area. I can ride better than this guy. And I can't do that. And I'm like, and immediately I'm like, if I could do that, then my backups and my stops and all these things in the show ring would get better. So... Originally, I was just thinking of, you know, ways to kind of get that competitive edge. So 
I uh, started asking him questions and he was just, he was a shareaholic type. He was just looking for somebody that he could share this cool stuff with. So, yeah. and uh, so, yeah, I started going over to his place and he was secretly hoping that if he got me interested in it, that it would give, you know, credibility and then his daughter might be interested, but that never happened. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, guys got to hope, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, he started showing me this stuff and I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. He started to teach me how horses think. You know, the concept of pressure and release, you know, teaching a horse how to move away from steady pressure, teaching them how to move away from rhythmic pressure, teaching them how to be confident about rhythmic motion, the idea of, you know, body language, you know, bringing your life up or softening your life to let the horse know if you want them to move and energize or if you want them to stop. And and to be quite honest, after he was you know teaching me all this stuff, I was excited, but I was also, you know, once I got into it a little ways, I was ashamed. Yeah. Because I thought to myself, how was I winning in the show ring, beating everybody in the show ring? And I didn't know any of these basic concepts of how to teach a horse. You know, it wasn't about teaching them to be light. It was about just making them, you know, get off of, you know, off my leg or off my rein. And, and yeah, it, it, you know, even though I got into it to improve my showing, the end result was that I, I uh, by the time I went back home to Canada, I wanted nothing to do with showing. Because it, it lost all value to me. You know, they showed me that, you know, their judging system wasn't the system I wanted to be judged by. To me, it became worthless. So then I started to go, go to, I started to seek out, well, you know, how do I get better? How do I continue with this? And so that was a, a very long journey. I, you know, went to this, this horsemanship program center, became an instructor, became a cult starter, did all their levels and did all that stuff for quite a few years. And it was really neat because there was a big focus on the relationship and impulsion and you know and patterns and stuff to kind of create that. So there was a lot of really good lessons that I got out of that. But at some point when I started starting cults, I was getting bucked off a lot. And I started to become a little bit more interested in how not to get bucked off and how to prepare a horse better, you know, horse development stuff. And I found that the relationship only took you so far. You know, it's like trust is good, control is better. <laughs> so, that's a great line. Say that again. <laughs> trust is good, control is better. Yeah, that's a that's a good way to put it. It is. So let me back up, back you up for just a minute. You were seventeen. You're in Australia, and how many kids your age? You and I are about the same age, and I can remember being seventeen as well. And at the time, I was really focused on sports. Okay. And that was what my life was a lot about. Now I would, I was spending summers at grandpa's farm and I was learning horses and cattle a little bit too, but I wasn't showing, I I didn't even know what a horse show was, but I don't think very many kids that age would be open-minded enough to see the neighbor down the road and see what he's doing. And especially like you said, you already knew that you were a better rider, quote unquote, meaning you knew how to stay on top of a horse better and you were more balanced and younger and more athletic, I assume, and all those type of things. But I don't know if that many kids are open-minded enough to, uh, to really just seek that out and go, you know, there's something there I could probably learn and kind of have that inward look, you know, or that look in the mirror. And, you know, I say as kids, but really, as you and I both know, we talk about it regularly, not that many adults even are able to, to do that. But that's a pretty interesting thing. And, and obviously, it changed the whole course of your, your life. Oh, yeah. Yeah, big time. Before I went to Australia, I was actually quite introverted and quite socially not good. I'd had really bad experiences in junior high. I was really, really badly bullied. 
for three years of my life. And it was a horrible experience. And it, at the end of it, I was extremely shut down and defensive. And I had to build a whole big wall and, you know, kind of learned how to get people just to leave me alone and be invisible. And so I think about, you know, when I went to Australia, it was kind of like most, a lot of it was, I just wanted to get away from those, those kids I grew up with, right? I just wanted nothing to do with them. I just wanted to have a fresh start to, and going to Australia allowed me to do that. It allowed me to kind of recreate myself into who I really was rather than, you know, this picture of, you know, who, who these, these kids were and, and, and bullying is a weird thing, you know, cause a lot of people struggle with that. And it's something that, you know, I'm, I'm very vocal about. I think I've become a champion of, of the oppressed as a result of that. Like I, because I do have a voice, I try to, you know, I try to champion open-mindedness and tolerance and acceptance because that's a, a sensitive part for me. But yeah, going to Australia and doing that program, it developed so much just self-confidence in me, you know, and leadership skills and, you know, and it just totally put me onto a, a different path. And I, I think about what would have happened to me if I hadn't have done that. And I don't even want to think about it, honestly, but it, it, it really opened me up and allowed me to become, you know, who I really was. So it was, it was a real powerful experience. Yeah, that's great. So there are so many little things that happen in life that that take a turn here or take a turn there. And, and just like you said, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine sometimes what would have happened if I wouldn't have met this person or if I wouldn't have gone over to that thing that one day and then saw this, that made me think about that, which made me look up that and then find that person. And, you know, yeah, it's crazy how the little, little turns keep changing there. So how long were you in Australia? Just for a year. Just there for a year. Actually 10 months total. So kind of there for the school year. Yeah. For the school year. And yeah. And, Although that that became kind of secondary to the horse stuff right. I was doing pretty quickly, that was my primary. You're there, motive, you're there to yeah. learn something. Yeah, yeah. I was doing I was doing the schooling and all that, and it was it was quite interesting actually because they have you know they call it just very different to see the differences in Australia with their curriculum too. Like some of the things such as physics, they were way more advanced than us, and other things like English, they were way behind, and and just you know the different different emphasis they had and on the different types of arts and sports and all that so it was a really neat cultural experience i really enjoyed it yeah. do you know a lot of other people that have gone over to uh, do a, a foreign exchange student program somewhere else from the states not a lot. I mean, there's there's a lot that have. Most of them that I know, it's been a horsemanship for an exchange. So I know a lot of people that have you know either come over here or gone other places for horsemanship, and that's that's pretty common. But as far as I, I come from, a very small town, so at the time, not a lot. Yeah. Well, what town was that again? Nelson, BC. Population about twelve thousand in the middle of the wilderness, <laughs> straight north of Spokane, Washington the americans yeah 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 a lot of americans don't know that the map doesn't end above washington there and i was not raised in an igloo <laughs> i've been asked that not everybody in canada was in an igloo it is amazing the more i travel the more people i get to meet different parts of the world how and if there's going to be people that went to school with me that are going to disagree with me maybe they maybe i just wasn't paying attention which is very probable but it is amazing how we are taught so little about other parts of the world yes in, in, in the American schools and about how a lot we kind of have, and I'm not saying that, that I had people just cramming down my throats, but there's this whole thing about, you know, America's the greatest country. Why would you want to learn about other places? You know, now not everybody has that mentality and I don't have that mentality at all. And I'm not saying anybody in my family has it or anything like that, but there is kind of that underlying message that we hear a lot growing up in America. And it's pretty interesting. The more you get out and learn that there's a lot of really cool places and cool people out there. 
Yeah, and I don't know if it's because the majority of Canadians live very close to the U.S. border, and if that's the reason, but you can go, everywhere I've been in Canada, you could go to a bank and take any currency in and they'll exchange it for Canadian. But if I were to go to a bank in the middle of Texas or Colorado and take my Canadian money in and exchange it, like recently they've gotten better, but I literally went into a Wells Fargo in Colorado to exchange some Canadian for US and the bank teller actually laughed at me, told me that may as well be Monopoly money. It's worthless. <laughs> and I was flabbergasted. At a big bank. Yeah, at a Wells Fargo, a major bank. And it, that was that's one of the things, like when you go to the other countries, you know, if I go to Italy or England to teach, yeah, they'll they'll all take you know take the American or the Canadian money, but uh, yeah. So there's you know that's kind of another example of that that you know a little bit um, not the same as some of the other parts of the world. It's interesting. So I kind of cut you off a minute ago, but you were kind of going on with telling me a little bit about. So you came back here and you started following that program, which is a little bit of what you've learned about in Australia, and then kind of from there you started learning a lot of those different levels, and you were talking about the Colts you were riding and. And uh, you wanted to get better at preparing those colts. Yeah. So after spending some time at the horse development place up in Dillon, Montana, and getting bucked off some pretty rank horses, found out the one horse they gave me had bu- had bucked off every person that ever rode it and put a number of you know, professionals in the hospital with broken ribs and collarbones. And I had a major concussion from him. First ride, he almost kicked my head in. That's when I found out that he was a bucker. <laughs> so yeah, I was like, I I need to know how to prepare these horses. I real it really showed me my holes, the holes in my foundation. So I was, you know, my mind was was very receptive at the time. And then I saw, I happened to to see a video on uh, called Groundwork on these groundwork principles that this fellow that studied, you know, that he was into vaquero horsemanship. That he you know he had this video out there, and I watched this video, and I'm like oh my God, this is amazing stuff. And it was basically just getting a horse ready to be saddled. But so many of the things that he did, he would talk about, it's like, yeah, you know, he, he would show how to get the hindquarters really freed up and, you know, just not just moving the hindquarters, but how he moved the hindquarters, you know, and not just looking for did the horse move, but in what frame of mind did he move? You know, was there still tension in the horse? Was there relaxation? Was it sticky? You know, so really taking the things that I'd learned in, in the natural horsemanship, but taking the refinement of it to a much higher level so he you know in this video i i just found out so many holes that i had and i was doing a lot of things but i wasn't doing them with the feel and the sophistication that i realized i needed and quite a few times in the video he says yeah if you get this part here good that'll eliminate about you know 90 percent of the bronc rides in your future so you know my ears perked up when i heard that <laughs> well that sounds good yeah, so I, I got really interested in, in this fellow and started, you know, I attended my first clinic a couple of years later in uh, San Antonio, Texas, just went to watch. And me and a couple other uh, other friends of mine who are also professionals, we all went and saw our first clinic together and we were blown away. And then I started riding with this fellow and following him and for a number of years and uh, taught me a lot. I, I just learned so much more and I, it, just the feel, the timing. And he was a real why person in the natural horsemanship. It was more of a concept. You know, like giving you tasks and you'd learn like, okay, let's, let's see if you can do this task. And through learning the task, you'd, you know, in order to be able to get the task done, you'd learn a bunch of stuff, but they never really told you why. It was more of a concept program. And and this fellow, he was a real detailed, he would give you the why, the moment to do things, you know, and, and really explain it. So I learned why I was doing all the exercises that I'd learned in the original program. That was uh, really, really fascinating to me. There's a lot of those a lot of those things where you you meet somebody that's telling you to do this concept, you meet somebody that's explaining exactly why and when to do that, and 
makes a lot more sense sometimes. So the term natural horsemanship, of course, I'm a little bit playing the devil's advocate here because, uh, you know, I've familiar with some of these things as well, but, but you and I have some different paths the way we got to where, where we're working on that term natural horsemanship today is, is been used and abused, used and abused. Right. And go ahead, just go ahead and, and tell me a little bit of your thoughts on just that, the, the language in general. Yeah, well, you know, the person that I was studying with, he was the original person, to, as far as I know, to start using that term. And then just like anything that catches on, you know, it's like organic. Everybody's using the term organic now, right? So, uh, or classical riding. Everybody's using the term. Now everybody's classically riding. And so, uh, but basically, you know, and then a lot of people would be like, well, there's nothing natural about riding a horse. Yeah, that's, that's kind of a line I've used. I'm guilty of that one quite a bit. Yeah. And, but, you know, mostly I just use the term for, you know, for because people kind of know what you're talking about a little bit, even if it is a lot of negative associations with that, because there's a lot of negative thoughts and feelings about people that do natural horsemanship, because there's a lot of people out there kind of butchering it. You know, they're kind of using it more of an excuse not to ride. And, and, and that's fine, too. You know, if there's people that don't want to ride, at least it gives them something they can do with their horses. They can't ride. They're scared to ride. So there's no judgment there. You know, there, there's something for everybody, but it's not just for those people. You know, it, it's for people that want to achieve things too. But, you know, when I think about what is natural horsemanship, I think about, well, it's using the systems that the horse uses to, you know, to interact with each other. So pressure and release, you know, they, you know, the body language, intent, you know, those types of things. And really thinking about it from the horse's perspective first before thinking about it from our perspective and trying to, you know, walk a mile or a minute in your horse's horseshoes and say, well, you know, try to understand why he might be scared of this thing that, you know, doesn't seem at all. It's like, well, you've seen that rock five times, you know, why are you still scared at it? But realizing they're prey animals, we're predators by nature. We eat meat, you know, we're predators. We're high on the food chain, you know, they're thousand pound bunny rabbits, you know, so just really understanding the difference between, you know, how our predator psychology, our direct line thinking can really clash with their prey animal psychology. The fact that they kind of need to kind of come in and check things out and make sure everything's okay. You know, trailer loading is a perfect example of that. Huge. The human, what does the human do? They go straight up to the trailer. And the moment the horse kind of hesitates to go like, whoa, what's this dark, scary cave? And as soon as the horse hesitates, what does the person do? They immediately try to pull him on. Hurry up. Come on. Rush him. And then all of a sudden the horse is like, oh, my God. And it feels all this pressure. You know, imagine if you're scared of heights and you went up to the Grand Canyon and just as you're looking over the Grand Canyon, kind of going, ooh, that looks scary. Somebody came up behind you and like, come on, get closer, get closer. You're going to hit the brakes. So really understanding that and, you know, rather than trying to just go up to the trailer and immediately hurry them up saying, hey, just give them a moment. Let them just take a look at it for a second and, you know, get a good look and sniff it and maybe check out the footing. And then when he you know, looks like he's kind of had a good look at it and he's he's happy and then asking him on just that little shift and just taking a moment you know, giving the horse a moment saying hey you are a prey animal maybe you need to check this out maybe you're, you know whatever it is and sometimes you know that horse is telling you there's something not good like how many times we heard stories about horse didn't want to go over the bridge and then they found out there was a it was broken or you know little stories like that so you know it's it's really to me about giving the horse the opportunity to, you know, be a two-way conversation, not just to do what I say now, but also, you know, listening to the horse. Yeah, because when that horse trusts us a little bit, then really we can trust them a lot more and we can rely on them a lot more. They can get a lot more done for us, for the people that are interested in going out and riding over the mountains and going places. Well, it's a lot better if, if you kind of, that horse is interested in doing what you're asking. Oh, absolutely. 
rather than just temporarily kind of doing it out of maybe fear or maybe for the wrong reasons, you know, and horses are full of fear. So sometimes there's a little bit of fear that is in a horse and we kind of use that, but we try to turn it into some respect, right? And then that has to come from a mutual respect. And uh, that seems to be something that we're always working on. I know you're teaching that all the time out there. The, the language of natural horsemanship, like you said, it's a lot of it is just about trying to use the systems that the horse uses anyway, right? Just trying to understand the horse, just trying to give the horse a little bit of the benefit of the doubt every now and then, you know, but I also hear, like you said, it's been, it's been taken off the rails and there's a lot of negative connotation to it. And, and of course I feel like you and I have both been a little bit on both sides and especially here the last few years, I've, you know, I've spent a little more time out on some ranches and did a little bit of cowboy in this year and, and so there's kind of that extreme. And then I run into somebody who thinks that bits are torture devices that should not be used. They should be outlawed or banned, you know, or that spurs should be, you know, you know, illegal in every state and things like that. Right. And so there's, there's so many, there's both extremes of that. And so finding that balance and letting people understand, I think that, you know, the, a bit and spurs and uh, reins and, and everything else is, it's a tool. And if it's used correctly, then, then it's great. Right. Yeah. I always tell people you can take a hammer and you can kill someone with it, or you can build a home with it. You know, you might need a little more than just a hammer to build a home, but in general, it's a, it's a tool and it's got to be used the right way. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, with the horsemanship stuff, I mean, that's the thing is any, anytime, any, not just with horsemanship, with life, anytime somebody's really extreme in any direction, you know, that I immediately kind of go, Ooh, you know, I don't know, you know, like I really try to be open-minded and, and, you know, I'm one of those weird people. I'm not really politically right or left. I'm quite curious on what they both have to say. Like, I want to know why does this extreme, even the extremes, like they really make me curious, a little bit baffled, but I'm like, I want to, I want to try to understand. I'm like, why do you think this? And same with the horsemanship. Like you get these people that are so extreme, you know, they take this concept of, of, Hey, let's see if we can you know ride a horse in a halter. Cause how light would they have to be? To be able to ride them, like how good would the communication and the lightness and the responsiveness, you know, it'd have to be hair light to be able to ride a horse in a halter with quality. But they take that concept and they take it so far in one direction that it lost the original message. And now it's like, oh, well, we're going to ride in halters because bits are evil. And, and then that wasn't the original that wasn't the intent of it originally at all. It was just because it's the hardest tool to get a horse light in. And you have to do things properly in that tool. So, you know. And also sometimes to, you know, stay out of the horse's mouth while, while we're teaching people some skills and to have some feel and, and whatnot. But taken to extremes and people tend to want to, they want to affiliate with a certain group. And it's it's kind of this innate human need to try to you know, kind of label things and organize themselves in groups and then collect other people that think the same way. And then, you know, and then in some ways ban, you know, ban or, or you know, chase away anybody who doesn't think like them. Which to me is something we always have to be very careful of because you got to ask yourself, well, what what are you in horses for? You know, you know, for me, I'm in horses because I'm really curious about them. I want to know as much as I can about how their minds work, and I want to learn how to have this really cool interaction with them where they where they truly want to be with me. You know, like in in the natural horsemanship program, it would look like my horses wanted to be with me, but. I knew that they didn't really necessarily at a certain point, you know, like say a Liberty demonstration. Well, they knew if they ran away that I was going to drive them around and there'd be, it'd be discomfort. 
but you know trying to get beyond that to where they actually truly want to be with me not just because you know of the thinly veiled threat of you know phase four or pressure but because they truly you know found you know found me to be an interesting thing and and to get to that so but yeah just being aware that we don't get too extreme in things and and you know noticing that and you know for me I want what works for the horse. So I don't care what program it comes from. And I don't care which program I'm currently following. I do focus on one at a time in general, just to like, I don't like to dabble at things, like pick one program and stick with it and really learn it. You know, apply yourself. Because if you, if you didn't think it was worth learning, well, why are you doing it anyway? So stick, you know, pick a program, follow it, flirt with others, but follow that program. You know, because then you'll, you'll, you'll get to the point where, you know, that program that you're following though, that doesn't mean they're God. Doesn't mean, you know, I don't think there's anybody out there who has everything figured out. All of us are making mistakes. No matter till the day we die, there's things we still don't know. There's blind spots. So if we're open-minded and, you know, not in these extreme right or left or, you know, if we're, but we're willing to learn from both of those, then I think we're going to be there for the horse the most and give the horse the best deal. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. We, we were just talking about that this morning with some of these gals here that you met. Just about how so many people sometimes have the idea that I'm going to learn a little bit from this person when they come into town that I'm going to go to this clinic a little or I might watch this or follow this trainer for a while and then after a while they think they're just going to put them all together like a nice little soup or a little melting pot of some kind and and in reality what ends up happening is they get really confused you know in their own in their own stuff and the and the horses obviously are going through that same same problem and I think like you just said, you know, sometimes picking a program or picking uh, something to work on at least for a while to get, to get some results. And then it's like, now you take that objective look and you say, okay, here's, here's what's going on with this program. Or is it, is it the way I'm trying to apply this program, which is obviously another big point. (laughs) But then if you decide, okay, I'm going to go see what this person has to say now, or I'll see what that person has to say now. But I think a lot of people when they're learning, they just don't really have the ability to differentiate the good information from the bad information. And that's a a line that I heard from a guy that I learned a lot from. And he would just kind of always say things like that. Like a lot of people can't separate the good from the bad information. So when they try to just go learn from a little bit of everybody, they just, they just can really get lost, you know? Absolutely. Well, and I think, you know, and I think we underestimate our ability to evaluate because something either looks beautiful you know, and brings you joy when you watch it. And you, you can look in the horse's eye, you know, and, and they'll tell you, like, you don't have to be trained. You could be a person who's never rode a horse in your life. And you can look at a picture. And if you're looking at that horse's eye, the expression that they have, you know if how the horse feels about it. So things that are beautiful, you, know, you can evaluate that. And things that are ugly and forceful and making, you know, you can evaluate that too, because I've seen some of that. And a lot of times those people that have never been around a horse, they're the best judges. Exactly. They're the best ones that can come up and say, because they're not indoctrinated into anything. They are not biased in anything. They just walk up and say, that horse looks unhappy. And it's like, well, duh. Why didn't, why didn't I notice that? I've been riding him for a while or whatever. Right. And that, that happens. And sometimes I think it, it, it's one of those things that really has amazed me my whole life because you know, there's a difference between you kind of knowing it in the heart of your heart of hearts, but not really admitting it to other people versus not seeing it at all. Or, you know, or when somebody brings it up to you, you like you didn't notice it before, but then when they say it, you're like, oh man, he's, you know, that's right. I do see that versus not seeing it. And when somebody does bring it up, just like putting a wall up and, and being blind to it. And and that, that goes on a lot in the horse world. And it, it's, 
it makes me so sad because I'm like, how do they not see it? You know, and, and, and you try to kind of like, you know, educate people on what to look for to make it more and more difficult. But yeah, and I think a lot of the times where I see that that happen the most is in competition because I think there's a lot of people that make a living off of competition and and yeah, and it's basically what the judges are awarding. Not necessarily what's best for the horse. I mean, look at fads and in any you know any competitive event, how it, you know what what wins has changed over the last fifty years. So yeah, that's that's something that definitely we have to be careful of. You know, we have to watch for because these horses didn't ask to be with us. You know, so we kind of owe it to them to try to at least find the best way we can of of doing whatever it is we want to do with them. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I I kind of use those similar lines quite often and. You know, I put a lot of that type of stuff in my book and, and, you know, obviously you and I both learned from people that were thinking similarly, but also we both just kind of went through different things that were working and then maybe we decided they weren't working. Then we saw something better and we think, Hey, let's just try to keep moving forward. A horse being happy is important, but I also think, you know, so sometimes I, I picture one of my other friends maybe that's out on the ranch and they're probably not listening to my podcast too often, but every now and then they're, they're thinking, well, sure. I want the horse to be happy, but I also have to get the job done today. Right. Yeah. So every now and then there's something to do and he, the horse may not be happy about going over there. He'd rather not rope that calf right now because he'd rather do this. So there's still some things to do. So I think it's finding that balance of where, sure, it may not be the horse's idea every time you need him to do something as far as, Oh, I'm happily going to do what you're asking quote unquote. But, on the other hand, I think if we can at least try to do things in a way where he makes sense out of it, right? And he can kind of figure, he or she, the horse, can can figure out whatever it is that we're, we're, we're trying to get done in a way that's not just totally leaving him up to being confused and not having to be able to figure it out, right? Yeah, because it's not all rainbows and butterflies. You know, and, and just like, and the other thing to remember, too, is when we're learning something, we're not going to be offering it to well for the horse. So when we're going through a learning stage, that horse is not going to be having fun. They're not going to look happy because we're in there, you know, hacking away at things, trying to learn some new skills, being very mechanical, you know, and, and understanding that it's not always going to look pretty, you know, but, you know, is that that's not our desk. That's not our final end point. You know, you know, knowing the difference between, hey, we've got to get through this kind of sticky, ugly, messy part to get to some lightness and to where it feels good on the other side. But having that, you know, really clearly as something we're trying to aim for, you know, and, and also being aware of being aware of how what's an acceptable window of time to get there. Yeah, because if if I'm playing with a horse and doing stuff with a horse, riding it, and I'm not able to get a change, and they're you know looking miserable for too, for too long, you know I'm gonna and I'll really dive in. I mean I'll roll my sleeves up and I'll work at something for weeks, months, even sometimes to try you know, and because sometimes it's me and I just need to work at it long enough to get better. But there's a certain amount of time that after a certain amount of time, if I haven't figured out the answers, I'm gonna go start looking for help. Yeah, I'm gonna start looking outside. Of, okay, what am I missing? Yeah, and that's that's hard to do sometimes. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've been there, and it's also sometimes difficult to, like you mentioned earlier, you've said it a couple times, but you kind of know something in your heart of hearts, the way you put it, and like when you were a kid, and you know you knew that you're winning blue ribbons, and the people are cheering, and people are saying good job, and you know the family or friends, and you know great, good job, look at this, I'm proud of that, but then you know. Your horse is liking you less and less and less. And that's tough to swallow. And I've been there too. It wasn't that tough back then, actually. 
Because back then, I just I just thought like, oh, all those movies, you know, my friend Flicka, that was just fantasy. Because that's what everybody told you. Well, that's just that's what happens in the movie. This is reality. And so I just went like, oh, okay, it's not what I thought it was. And you just because that's what everybody tells you. So back then, I just thought, well, oh, okay, well, this is this is what it is. It's not all magic. That's Disney. But then I realized, no, it can still that that stuff is possible. And then it became, you know, where it was hard to see not have that. So ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss sometimes for sure. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a lot of people out there doing so many different things with the horses. Like, like we mentioned, different, different type of competitions. You and I are in the minority of as far as what people do with their horses. You know, the people that are working at the the stuff that, that you and I are kind of talking about is a smaller group. So how have you found the best way to spread that message? to some of the people maybe in those other groups that could care less about doing some of these things right now. It really, you know, I, I don't try to change the world. I just try to change each individual person that comes my way. And, you know, I, I'm not as extroverted as some people. It's like I, I'm, I'm really bad at kind of tooting my own horn and getting out there, putting myself out there and saying, hey, I got something cool to teach you. So people kind of have to come and find me to learn stuff from me because <laughs> I just I'm kind of a shy person in that regard. And but the ones that do come, they're generally there's something they've seen or heard that has interested them. So the people that show up to my clinics are generally the ones they're they're receptive, they're fertile ground, they're they're really looking for things. And then I just try to give everything I possibly can in every clinic. Like I don't hold back. I give as much as I possibly can. I give them all my secrets. Like anything I have learned that has helped me, like some stuff that's taken me 10 years to compile, I give it all to them. I don't hold back. And a lot of them now are going forth and they're becoming instructors or they're just helping out other people at their barn. And some of them are in the competitive world. And I think, you know, not to underestimate the effect that just changing one person, you know, one person's life with their horse you know, what effect that can have. Cause I, I don't go and try to change competitive people's minds. Sometimes I'll, you know, I'll go on Facebook and I'll start writing things to see it, see if I can get people to thinking, thinking about things a different way, but I don't put too much time trying to change people's minds. What I do is I try people that are already interested that they're looking for something else. I try to help them become the best they can be because often the competitive world, they're not going to start paying attention until, you know, the stuff we're doing, we're doing at a very high level because they'll, they'll say, well, that's just recreation stuff. That's for people that aren't really serious about horses. They don't really want them to, to perform at a high level. But, you know, so yeah, that's, that's how I go about it. I, you know, change one person at a time. And um, really the majority of people out there though are recreational riders now, that's the majority of them. You know, it's just a few that are really interested in taking it to a super high level. Yes, for sure. The competition world is very small compared to the people that just have horses and want to recreationally ride. You're, yeah, you're right about that. I was kind of, when I said we were in the minority, I just was kind of thinking of this, maybe this deeper level, you know, and just like you said, a lot of the, a lot of the competitive riders and people that are my friends that I, you know, spend a lot of time with, they might look at some of this stuff that you and I do and kind of think, you know, well, that's that's for people that don't want to do the advanced stuff. When in reality, I, I kind of realize now that this is the advanced stuff. You know, this is the deep stuff. This is the stuff that you really have to get all the ducks in a row and all the corners. We got to be straight as you're going forward. Whereas in some of the other stuff, you can skip a lot of steps and still end up winning a few blue ribbons, you know. And it's often those types of people that are really, you know, goal oriented they got jobs to do or whatever they're they usually often don't change their mind until they have a horse that they can't get through to 
And then for, you know, and, and sometimes that, you know, not being able to get through to this particular horse, they that leads them in the direction of what we're doing. And then all of a sudden, you know, maybe that they just come to that person to, to fix this one problem. They're not really interested in the program. They just want to fix this one thing. But then, you know, through the course of learning with that person about fixing that one thing, if, you know, if the if the coach sometimes can get through to them and explain like, hey, this is why this happened. And, and sometimes that's just the the, the key that kind of opens up their mind the possibilities of thinking in a different way because it's 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 like you know take the time you know take the time it takes so it takes less time you know that whole thing it's like if you you know it's like well okay it took me 45 minutes to be able to handle this horse's foot one person could say well i don't i don't have 45 minutes it's like well do you have three hours to fight with it to get the shoes on yeah <laughs> it's like <laughs> okay then do you have an hour every time for the rest of his life exactly you know or you know six months while you're healing up in the hospital you know because he you know, kicked you in the, in the shin uh, so sometimes it's that it's they don't they don't come to it until until there's a, a need until they've exhausted every other resource yeah and then and some of them will do that and maybe they'll they'll come to something like that to try to learn and then a lot of times they'll just say well this horse just is no good right so they just pass that horse on and they get another one in and that happens a lot. I don't think people realize how many horses are disposed of. Some of them, I mean, I mean, put down, like killed so that, you know, nobody can say it came from that trainer, like to deny it ever existed. That happens. It happens a lot more than people realize. Yeah. People don't know. They don't realize it's if they did. I, I think things would there would be some movements. <laughs> yeah, there might be. I couldn't agree more when you said you know, about being being cautious of people who are the extremes in, in either direction. There is going to be some changes that come about, and I'm glad that some of these changes are being brought up, you know, in the horse industry in general and some of the competitions we've, you know, we've, I think there's some legislation right now about some of the things they're doing with some of the different gated horse competitions and, and things like that. And, and it looks like that's, from what I hear, is kind of going to pass, and I think overall that it's going to be a good thing. But there's a lot of things that, you know, it takes legislation sometimes to get some changes to come about. And it takes people, the extreme cases sometimes, to push the legislation just to the, you know, mediocre uh, spots. And I think it's uh, tough to find some of that balance. Yeah, and that's that's kind of reflected in the history of mankind. Often, you know, bad things often don't change until they reach that tipping point. And all of a sudden, it's just it became so bad that it, all of a sudden people became they noticed it. And it's like, well, how you know, like things like, you know, our world wars. It's like, well, how did they get there? Like, how did they, it get that bad before you know something happened? And it's because it's easy for people to just kind of put blinders on or be complacent or just you know worry about their own little circle. And that's just you know that's just being a person. That's just human nature. Part of human nature. So speaking of the, those kind of things. Tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing here in Kansas City and some of the things that you got Trevor doing. Where is he is he here right now or is he over overseas? Yeah, well, yeah, well Trevor's my husband and he is a US Air Force pilot. He's a rescue pilot. He flies the HC one thirty J. I can now say all that. <laughs> I'll tell you, learning military stuff has been I come from Canada. It's like we have a military, but we never really notice it. I mean, it's somewhere. I'm just like we know we have one, but you know, whereas down here it's such a strong part of the culture. So yeah, that was a that was a a, a shift and a you know kind of an interesting thing for me to get involved with a military guy and be exposed to that whole world. And it's it was interesting. And so uh yeah, we've been married for about gosh, two and a half years now. And uh, he got sent here to Kansas City for one year 
assignment. He's doing the, let's see if I can get this right, Command and General Staff College over at Fort Leavenworth. <laughs> so it's something that the top percentage of the Air Force anyway gets sent to, and it's like a immersion program. So, because Fort Leavenworth is Army and Trevor is Air Force. So he's going here to learn how the Army does their things. That way, when he's, you know, goes back to the Air Force, he can say, hey, this is stuff that I learned from them. And then when we're trying to, you know, out in, you know, in the middle of combat zones, we're trying to coordinate a group effort. This is how we could work with these guys better. So it's a real effort to really coordinate and understand each other, which is what it should, everything should be about, right? <laughs> it's kind of just makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Instead of our own branches of the military just bad-mouthing each other and putting blinders on, let's just try to work together sometimes, right? That's, that's my motto with horsemanship. It's like, why can't we all just get along, work together? <laughs> why can't we all be friends? Uh, yeah. Well, at least you and I are. Mm-hmm, yeah. that, that's a good way to start. And actually, it was when I met you, like you were talking about this earlier, you know, you have the people you studied with. And when I met you, you were, you know, you, you talked a lot about those mentors you've had in the past. And, uh, you know, and at the time, I was, I really wanted to, to you know, go and see some of the people you studied with because some of the things you're telling me, I'm like, well, that sounds interesting because it was different than the way I was doing some things. And that made me curious. Anything different makes me curious. Some people get threatened. I'm, I'm weird apparently in how I think. I just, it just makes me curious. I'm like, oh, well, I want to understand that. And that actually led me to study with some other really interesting people who've really taken things. You know, it's, it's just a big old rabbit hole and I go off on these neat things. But yeah, if it wasn't, if I hadn't met you, I wouldn't have gone and ridden with some really cool people and kind of explored, you know, explored that avenue. So, Well, I think that's, uh, that's good. And if I hadn't met you, I wouldn't be doing some of the things that I'm doing today. Yeah, like Costa Rica. Like Costa Rica, <laughs> Pennsylvania. For those of you guys that don't know, Fawn is the one that kind of introduced me to, well, recommended me and a few other people to work at uh, the ranch in Pennsylvania that I go to pretty regular now. And first time I went to Costa Rica, I went with Fawn and her husband. And uh, then I've been back a little bit since then. But yeah, so tell me about the Costa Rica deal a little bit. Maybe maybe not tell me as much as tell our listeners here about when you went down there and I actually had a couple of them on the podcast already, Jorge and, and uh, Margo both were on the podcast this spring, but um, tell us a little bit about your, your experiences down there and how that came about. Well, the first time I went to Costa Rica was actually to teach a clinic and, uh, and that's how I met Jorge. And then I'm trying to remember if that was when I met Margo too. I'm trying to remember the first time I met Margo. No, I think Margo was the, when I actually went to, to do the actual trek. So the Costa Rica trek, Originally, we went not just with Jorge. It was a trek that another company had organized, and he was helping them. And then through the course of the trek, I decided that I actually wanted to really focus on on doing something with just Jorge because I really liked the fact that the other lady was was not Costa Rican, and Jorge was. And I just liked the authenticity of the fact of going into Costa Rica and Jorge's ability to really integrate you into that Costa Rican culture you know, because he would hire people that were local villagers to cook your food or, you know, give you a place to stay for that night. And then, you know, you'd hang out with these people, you know, you'd play musical instruments with them, you know, you'd talk to them, you'd eat their food, you know, you'd help them. You know, I mean, the one guy, Miguel, we, you know, remember that when you and Ricky were down there, we were in the kitchen, we were learning how to make the, um, oh, shoot, what was it called? Ceviche. Ceviche, yeah. It's like, we want to learn to make ceviche. So really integrating into the culture versus doing, you know, a, a tourist trap. I freaking hate tourist traps. I can't stand them. Like, I don't want to go somewhere and just stay at a five-star hotel and with a bunch of other gringos (laughs) and so jorge was this really amazing personality that would allow you to you know to see to see things in a different way and and the first time we went it was 
I was glad because I kind of rounded up a group of my most advanced students and we all went and we, you know, we went a few days early to have some time to get the horses ready. And I was glad we did. We had a lot of work to do the early days. Yeah. Yeah. When you started coming, it was quite a bit cushier. We had good saddles, good tack. Good, we had an arena. <laughs> So yeah, and I just I just really believed in what Jorge was doing, and he really wanted to not just have trail rides for people to follow nose to tail. He wanted to offer something for people who were, who were interested in horsemanship to go and you know be, have the freedom to really ride a horse, you know, and, and a nicely trained horse. So you know you can actually you know ride off away from the group, and your horse wouldn't rear up and try to you know buck you off if you did. You know, so that was um, and so I just I really poured in you know my heart and soul into a couple of years, just you know trying to you know find people to donate you know donate things like equipment and all this stuff, and you know give them some guidance and and how to build it up, and and then the Canadian dollar went into the toilet. So that's when that's when I brought you on the scene. It's like, okay, our dollar sucks, so Canadians can't afford to come and do this. So here's Cal Middleton, you know, an American. You guys' dollar's great. So yeah, and so now they're so yeah. It's been hard to get back for it's been hard to bring some some Canadians back down there lately, is what you're saying. Yes. It's been kind of a tough thing. I mean, there's I've had some people that went with me last year and had a, just had a blast. But it's not easy to get people to, you know, to I mean that's a it's it's different for, I think, for a lot of Americans, especially if they haven't been somewhere like that, Costa Rica, and they're thinking, I'm going to go down there, ride somebody's horse I don't even know. And I've never, even, I don't even know where Costa Rica is on the map. You know, some people are thinking and saying, and that's kind of where I was when I first, when you, when you first talked to me about it. It's, it's a little different for them. Then after a little bit, they can kind of get to thinking, okay, actually it's, it's uh, closer than flying to half the places in the United States. It's not really that far away. The horses are actually pretty cool. The food is great, and it's a beautiful place to go. And that's a really, really cool trip. You can, so. you can drink the water there. You don't have to worry about drinking bottled water. There's not, like, malaria or diseases like that. It's a safe place. So They say that the water is uh, really healthy for you down there. So it's good stuff. So speaking of different places, tell me a little bit about Philippe Carl and the program that you've been working on there most recently. And that's a, that's a pretty cool deal. Yeah. Well, when I got into the Vaquero scene, that that's where my heart lives. Like I was, I wanted to make bridal horses. I wanted to learn all about that. The whole Vaquero tradition of the, you know, the hackamore, the two rain, the bridal. But the horse I was using for that, he got what's called kissing spine when my warm blood gelding crushed him during a play session. And so now the spine, the spines touch right where I sit. And then pretty quickly, I was not able to do anything on the ground or ride him. He was completely, like, you couldn't even touch him. He would just panic. And so through re rehabilitating him and trying to figure out like how to rehabilitate him, that's how I, I started to get pointed in the direction of dressage. You know, and people said, well, he has to learn how to use his core. He has to learn how to, you know, how to stretch his top line. And that wasn't something that was in the program that I'd been studying. You know, you know riding him on a loose rein, yeah, but to actually stretch them. So originally I started working with a gal who, who did some dressage naturally stuff. And it was great. Like she kind of taught me the stretching stuff, but then it wasn't enough of a continuation. There wasn't enough consistency. And I wanted to le learn how to do the in-hand work as well, because I was told that in-hand work would be really valuable because I'm not sitting on the spot because it's right where I sit is where a spine touches. So by being on the ground, I was able to take the, my weight off of there and allow him to teach him to use his body in a different way. So that's how I, that's why I started to, I signed up for the Philippe Carl teacher's course. 
And then, yeah, I, I flew to, to Europe to see Philippe first, you know, in, and, I, and some of my instructor friends were riding in his courses over there. So I, you know, I wanted to go and see them and see what they thought about it and have them show me some things. And when I saw Philippe teaching and I saw him riding and I saw his instructors teaching and riding, I was blown away. And, you know, like I said, it's like when you see something pure and good and like, yes, it's like you don't even know you're looking for it until you see it. And you're like, that is beautiful dressage. That looks amazing. It's like, hey, it's all my horsemanship principles. So it's like uh, when I saw it, I'm like, oh, my God, like, you know, this is beautiful. This type of dressage. Yeah, I, this feels right. You know, spoke to me. So, yeah, I signed up for their teacher's course and started with some other two other horses that I had first. And then after the first two years in the course, I switched to my little buckskin, little quarter horse. And yeah, I'm the one with the little little Mustang looking quarter horse in the dressage teacher's course. <laughs> yeah. No, I've, I've got to watch some of those clinics and watch some of your tests that you did out there. Yeah, you, you got to see me do the in hand and lunge portion Yeah, to, to a Western soundtrack. So we have to have music playing. <laughs> I was the only one who didn't have dressage music for their test. No, that's a really that's a really cool course, I think, and uh, you know I've I've been able to watch and learn a little bit and uh, see some of those things. And just like you said, it's whether or not you recommended it or told me that you liked it or that it was good. The first day I show up and I watch those people working those horses, I I see some good there, right right away, and that's uh, that's always refreshing to see. And so what I'm trying to do now is I'll tell you it's it's the hardest thing I've ever done. The leisure take horse is the hardest thing I've ever done. Everything else came easy to me, like came naturally, like I picked up quick. This is this has been much harder. And, you know, having it was easier before I switched to my kissing spine horse. <laughs> but uh, he gives me pretty clear feedback on when I'm on the right track and when I'm not. And I, I look forward to the day where there's more instructors in the U.S. because at the time we have we have our instructor three times a year. And in between, that's it. And we were on our own and I'll tell you, it can, it can sure be challenging and humbling. And yeah. And one of the neat things about the leisure Tay program is we do not use tight nose bands. And actually for the test, you cannot have a nose band on your horse at all because there's a lot of people out there that are tying the horse's mouth shut with the nose bands. And they're doing that to hide what's going on in the horse's mouth, the displaced behaviors, the anxiety, the tension, the evasions that are going on. They, they, they do that to, to hide it and they'll, t- they'll tell you all sorts of other reasons why they're doing it. But, you know, so I, I got to a point with my buckskin last year sometime early you know, spring of last year where I was starting to get some displaced behaviors and it shows up because the mouth's not tied shut. And I'm like, Oh my goodness. You know, my horse's, my horse's mouth is open. Like, Oh no. Right. And, and so I go, okay, well, I got I to gotta figure some things out. And that's when I started going back to some of the horsemanship guys. I'm like, okay, well, these dressage people, I know they can do it right. Because when I see them riding my horse, they're getting, it looks beautiful. But when they try to teach me to do it, like, it's like there's a language barrier or something. But they, like it wasn't getting, like, they weren't able to communicate to me how to do what they were doing. So anyway, so I, I started to go back to horsemanship and try to think, okay, how can I put more psychology in this? How can I, you know, one of my favorite sayings, and I think this was in Tom Dorrance's book. I think this is, I hate to quote him without actually looking at it, but I believe in his book, he says the single most important thing in horsemanship is setting it up and letting the horse search, letting them find it rather than making them do something. And so I felt like I was making my horse doing, do a lot of things, even though the principles were not that that's, I kept on finding it felt like that. And so I kind of went back to horsemanship and kind of figured out more ways to set it up and let the horse find it so that they 
you know, not making them do something, but, and then when they do find it, just cause that to feel as good as it possibly can to them. You know, so they want to be there. So they search for it and easier said than done sometimes. And I'm glad you brought up Tom Dorrance. There's actually a little bit of a connection there in the Leisure and Tom Dorrance, right? The Philippe Carl learned from. Uh, he was, he, well, not directly from Boucher because Boucher died in couldn't like 16 or 17 something. But yeah, he studied, he studied Boucher and a lot of people, mm-hmm, a lot of people. And, and Tom Dorrance had read a book, one of Boucher's books years ago. And that's kind of where a lot of that stuff started. Of course, Tom figured a lot of things out working horses and had a lot of experience there and went ranches and different things. But, you know, he was a, he was a student of the horse. He was a, he was a, you know, Tom was a, the type of guy that just wanted to learn and he would read everything he could get his hands on. And, and there's a little bit of a connection there. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's if you look deep enough, there's more similarities. There's more things connecting us than there are separating us. You know, when it's people that are really looking for good, good horsemanship, that, they're, that are in it for the horse, like if that, that's their main priority, there's so many connections, you know, because, yeah, and I like to focus on those. Yeah, good. Well, listen, Fawn, I sure appreciate you coming up today and giving us a chance to talk about some of this stuff. Tell people where they can find out a little bit more about you if they're if they're interested. Of course, I can put a link here on my website, but. The place that I am the most active because I don't, I try not to spend that much time on the computer. I prefer to be out riding my horses, but it's one of those necessary evils, as you know, in the horse industry. So, and a few years back, I finally resigned myself to using Facebook. I I was in, I I, I didn't even want to get a cell phone for years. I I didn't want people to be able to reach me. So I'm slowly, you know. Come to find out if you're going to have a business, they kind of need to get a hold of you, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, I got, uh, so Facebook's actually, um, where I'm the most active, I, I created a, a private group, closed group. It's called Classical Natural Vaquero, Fawn Anderson Horsemanship. And it's a place where I encourage people. It's it's a place for open-minded horsemanship. I like to create a safe place where people can ask tough questions and I'm not, you know, and know that I'm not going to get offended or defensive. But, you know, like, you know, if you have a question on why this person does that, let's explore it. You know, and I'll often write articles on there, like I'll dive into some subject that has fascinated me or I'll get inspired. So I write on there, I post things from other people that I think are, are quality or, or that, that, you know, get you thinking a little bit more. So that's the best place. And if they're not on Facebook, I also have the website, fawnanderson.com. So that's a, that's an easy one. Or yeah, come to one of my clinics. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad that you're out there doing what you're doing and helping people with their horses and I wish you the best. And appreciate your time today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, yeah, whenever I get a chance to come and watch Cal teach, I always enjoy it. Watching anybody I can. And he's got a lot of good stuff going. And uh, yeah, like I said, if it wasn't for you, there's some really neat things that just meeting you kind of pointed me in some other paths. And, you know, got me start, starting to think about certain things, doing them in a different way that I really enjoy. It's really some good stuff. So working together. You bet. Glad to hear it. All right, Fawn. Thanks. Thank you. If you're enjoying the Horses in Life podcast, there are many ways you can support it. You can obviously tell people about it. You can tell your friends about it. You can share it through social media or any other means. You can go to patreon.com and support it financially. There's a little more information on my website about the podcast. Also on my website, calmiddleton.com. Please be sure you sign up for my monthly newsletters through my email subscription list. Until next time, enjoy each day. Enjoy each day.